This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Welcome back to the show. I'm glad you're here for episode 54 because I have a few pieces of Oscar history to uncover as old Hollywood continues to battle with new Hollywood for the ears of the movie-going public. As has been the case for many years, the group of Oscar-nominated songs in 1986 were written by songwriters who had been in the business for decades alongside some newcomers trying to cash in with a great movie song. I'm going to reveal some plot details throughout this episode, and also there will be some adult language in one part of the episode. Let's start with the songwriter with the best Oscar pedigree among the 1986 nominees, and that would be Henry Mancini. Five of his previous Oscar nominations all came from movies directed by his longtime collaborator, director Blake Edwards. And all four of Mancini's Oscars were from Blake Edwards' movies, including 1982's Victor Victoria. Mancini wrangled a win in the original song score category for Victor Victoria after a weird rule in 1982 seemingly kept the songs from being able to compete in original song. Five of the 11 movies that Henry Mancini wrote music for after Victor Victoria were directed and written by Blake Edwards, including two in 1986. One of them was called A Fine Mess, which was a major flop, and starred Ted Danson in the middle of his run as Sam Malone on the TV show Cheers. Danson's appearance in the movie didn't bring people in, and even Blake Edwards told people not to see it. Because of the movie's immense failure, the title song got very little exposure, which is perhaps one reason why it was passed over for an Oscar nomination. The song was performed by The Temptations and written by Henry Mancini and Dennis Lambert, who was doing better than Mancini thanks to hits such as We Built This City and Baby Come Back. Lambert had written some hits for The Temptations in the early 1980s and got them to sing this jazzy tune. Telephone 
The second Blake Edwards movie in 1986, called That's Life, featured his wife, Julie Andrews, in her first real movie since Victor Victoria. Perhaps because he wanted to do something different, Edwards filmed That's Life in his own Malibu home and used his daughter, Julie Andrews' daughter, and co-star Jack Lemmon's son to play Julie and Jack's children in the movie. Edwards put up his own money for the movie, which apparently wasn't enough to pay union-level wages. Some people quit working on the movie in protest, but it got made anyway. The box office wasn't good, just $4 million, and it further sank Blake Edwards' stock. If you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to play the part of Blake Edwards here for a moment and suggest that you avoid it. There's nothing inherently interesting about these characters. Like the title says, I suppose that's life, where we all lead normal lives. But in a movie, a character played by Julie Andrews has to have more to do than wait to find out if she has cancer and deal with a neurotic husband. The movie is supposed to be somewhat autobiographical, with Edwards putting his own neuroses into Jack Lemmon's character as he turns 60 years old. Henry Mancini, who was also looking to revive his career after being a part of just three or four successful movies in the last 15 years, was so busy trying to bring a Broadway version of Victor Victoria to life with lyricist Leslie Bricus from 1983 to 1985 that he didn't put much effort into his work on That's Life. Though the movie didn't require any original songs, Mancini came up with one anyway, asking Bricus to help craft one for the end credits. The result was Life in a Looking Glass, performed by jazz singer Tony Bennett, and it resulted in an Oscar nomination for Henry Mancini and Leslie Bricus. Bricus has said that the idea for the title and the lyrics came from the many scenes in the movie featuring Lemon staring at himself in the mirror in disgust. Because Bricus is English, and because the English call mirrors looking glasses, the title was Life in a Looking Glass instead of Life in a Mirror. It has to be one of the most depressing Oscar-nominated songs in a long while. The lyrics don't offer any optimism after offering up that you may see the day your youth slipped away, only that you'll just have to accept it, just as Jack Lemmon is finally able to do at the end of the movie. If you look at your life in a looking glass You may see some things you don't want to see You may see the day or you've slipped away And you'll say, hey, that just can't be me You can learn about life in a looking glass Maybe learn some things you never dreamed you'd know Leave me though in time fate will show That the looking glass is true And in your heart you'll agree That's life 
that you see And you'll know who you are And be glad you're you If you look at your life in a looking glass You may see some things you don't want to see You may see the day your youth slipped away And you'll say, hey, that just can't be me You can learn about life in a looking glass Maybe learn some things you never dreamed you'd know Believe me though in time fate will show That the looking glass is true And in your heart you'll agree That's life that you see And you'll know who you are And be glad you're you Glad you're you Even though Tony Bennett was one of the most celebrated singers of the mid-1980s, there was no commercial release of Life in the Looking Glass, at least not a big one. So the Oscar nomination came solely on the merit of the song itself, and possibly the cassette tapes members of the Academy's music branch received to help the song's exposure. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was not the only organization to give the song a nomination. Life in a Looking Glass was nominated for a Golden Globe, giving Leslie Bricus his first Golden Globe nomination since 1970, and Henry Mancini's first Golden Globe nomination for original song since 1974. The song made some infamous history when it became the first to be nominated for an Academy Award and for the Golden Raspberry, which had begun recognizing the worst in movies since 1980 as the antithesis to the Academy Awards. A couple of actors had been nominated for an Oscar and a Razzie in the same year, but the Golden Raspberry nominees for original song were, before 1986, always songs that would have never been considered for Oscars. But Life in a Looking Glass blurred that line forever. The song didn't win the Razzie. It went to the song Lover Money by Prince from the very bad movie Under the Cherry Moon, And if there's one great thing to come from Under the Cherry Moon, it's the song Kiss, which went to number one on the Billboard chart in 1986. 
And by the way, Kiss wasn't eligible for an Oscar because it had not been written for the film. While Henry Mancini and Leslie Brickus were looking to bring their film score Victor Victoria to Broadway, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman had been working for two years to bring their off-Broadway show Little Shop of Horrors to the big screen. David Geffen was a producer of the stage musical, and he asked his friend Steven Spielberg to be executive producer for the movie. That would certainly get the movie made, but Spielberg declined. Geffen was still hoping to get the movie made, and he made sure the original songwriters were there to beef up the stage show's songs. In an attempt to keep the original show's ending that killed off the main characters as the man-eating plant Audrey II takes over the world, Minkin and Ashman wrote a new song that would highlight Audrey II's origins, called Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. After a few test screenings, audiences hated the fact that Rick Moranis and Ellen Green die, and the filmmakers had to go back and reshoot the ending that kept them alive and killed Audrey II. Mean Green Mother from Outer Space stayed in, with some revised lyrics. The song keeps the acinity-spewing personality of Audrey II intact as he fights Rick Moranis' Seymour. The song talks about how Audrey II is even worse than Frankenstein, the creature from the Black Lagoon, and King Kong. And the chorus reveals that Audrey II has living pods attached to him, and they sing along with him. Every household in America, thousands of you eating. That's what you had in mind all along, isn't it? No shit, Sherlock. We're not talking about one hungry plant here. We're talking about world conquest. And I want to thank you. You're not going to get away with this. Your kind never does. <laughs> I don't care what it takes. Only one of us gets out of here alive. Better wait a minute. Uh, hey. You better hold the phone. Better mind your matters. Better change your tone. Don't you threaten me, son. You got a lot of gold. We're going to do things my way. Oh, we won't do things at all. Kid. 
Audrey II's voice, both speaking and singing, is supplied by Levi Stubbs, the lead singer of the Motown group The Four Tops. Any fan of The Four Tops during their heyday in the 1960s and 1970s would have been surprised to hear Levi Stubbs' talking voice coming from an animatronic plant. But it worked, and the nominated song Mean Green Mother from Outer Space remains a standout and a song score full of great tunes. The Wikipedia page for Little Shop of Horrors says that Mean Green Mother from Outer Space is the first Oscar-nominated song to contain profanity. Now that would be true if you don't consider the word damn profanity. Since that word is considered profanity by the movie ratings board even in the 21st century, we count it as profanity here on the Best Song Podcast. So, Theme from Shaft in 1971 is the first song to contain profanity and get an Oscar nomination. But Mean Green Mother takes it a lot further. There's another tidbit from the movie's Wikipedia page that says the song is the first one sung by a villain to be nominated for an Oscar. Now that is true. I don't count Ave Satani from The Omen because the singers are not the villains of the movie. They are only the Greek chorus in a way, which makes them villain adjacent, but not technically the villains of the movie. Steven Spielberg didn't stay involved with Little Shop of Horrors, but he did serve as executive producer for a non-Disney animated film about a mouse from Russia separated from his family while they crossed the ocean to America. The movie is an American tale, and it was the second major animated movie in the 1980s not made by the Walt Disney Studio. The first was The Secret of Nim from 1982, directed by Don Bluth in his directorial debut three years after leaving Disney. Bluth served as animation director for the Disney films Pete's Dragon and The Rescuers, both in 1977. 
and then he left to establish his own animation company. The Secret of Nim was not a moneymaker, even though critics loved it. And without the assistance of Steven Spielberg, it's likely that an American tale would not have happened. One of Spielberg's early directives was that an American tale should be a musical, and he picked Tom Baller to write the songs and the underscore. There's no real rhyme or reason why Baller was hired for this film, since he had never written music for the movies. The only through line from Spielberg to Baller lies with Quincy Jones, who was producing Spielberg's The Color Purple around the time An American Tale was starting production. Spielberg likely asked Quincy Jones for a recommendation, and he suggested Baller, who was an associate producer for the mega-hit We Are the World. Baller's submissions were not greeted with enthusiasm, so he was fired from the project. Jerry Goldsmith, who had written some songs and the score for The Secret of Nim, wanted to do it, but had some scheduling conflicts with the nearly 10 other film scores he had on his plate. James Horner, who was an up-and-coming composer in the mid-1980s, agreed to write the score, but had never written songs before. Enter husband and wife songwriting duo Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, who collaborated with Horner on the four songs in the film. With only four songs, that meant An American Tale would be ineligible for the Academy Award for Original Song Score, since the rules state that five original songs had to appear in the movie. But it didn't really matter since there weren't enough original song scores to bring back the category in 1986. Weil and Mann already had a bunch of hit songs on their resume. They wrote on Broadway in 1963, which would get a second life in 1979 when it appeared in the opening of the movie All That Jazz, and composed You've Lost That Love and Feeling from 1963 with Phil Spector. Most recently, their song Just Once was a big hit in 1981 for James Ingram. This was their first film project, and after you hear the four songs in the movie, you might think they did an average job. The first song in the film, No Cats in America, tries to be a big Broadway song, but feels disjointed. And Never Say Never is just okay, as is a duo. But it's the Oscar-nominated song somewhere out there that shows the potential that an American tale had to be a great animated musical. I haven't really told you about the plot of the film yet, and it's important to know what's going on to appreciate the song somewhere out there. The movie focuses on a family of mice living in the early 1900s in Russia, and they're forced out of their home by the invasion of a Cossack army. The mice, with the last name Mousekowitz, board a ship sailing to America. The middle child in the family is Fivel, who goes overboard on a very stormy night and is separated from his family. The bulk of the film is spent trying to reunite Fivel in New York City with his family. His mother and father have given up hope that Fievel is alive, but his older sister, Tanya, is sure that Fievel survived. One night, an Irish mouse named Bridget takes him to her home for a comfortable night's sleep, where Fievel notices the very large full moon. It causes him to sing about his family, who he believes is thinking about him. It becomes a duet when Tanya sings about reuniting with her brother.
The voice for Fievel was a seven-year-old boy named Philip Glasser, and apparently the direction was to not make Fievel sound like a professional singer. It actually makes the performance more endearing that he doesn't exactly hit all the right notes. But Tanya's voice is clear and pristine. The voice actor, Amy Green, was replaced for the song by Betsy Cathcart. There's no history on Cathcart, particularly any history that would show that she had been a professional singer and there's no record of her pursuing her career as a singer after this. She was uncredited in the movie as the singing voice of Tanya, which likely hurt any chances she had of using the song performance to boost her career. When you don't get credited in a movie, you can't prove that you were part of it. After hearing the song performed, Spielberg was certain there was a chance it could be a hit on the radio. He requested a pop version be made, used in the end credits, and released as a single. Man and Wild remembered working with James Ingram and suggested him as the male half of the duet. Linda Ronstadt, who was also a superstar at the time, was brought in to complete the duo. This version changes the meaning of the song very significantly. In the body of the film, it's a song about siblings reuniting. In the end credits version, it could be viewed as a song about two siblings, but with two adults performing it, the song feels very romantic, about two lovers who long to be together even though they are miles apart. There is a very small subplot involving two mice in love in an American tale, but they aren't kept apart by distance. So the pop version doesn't really fit with anything that happened in the movie, but that doesn't mean it's not a great song. Someone saying 
Spielberg's instincts were right. The pop version of Somewhere Out There became a big hit, getting all the way to number two on the Billboard Hot 100 on March 14, 1987, the same day that ballots were being sent to members of the Academy to vote on that year's Oscar winners. The song that kept Somewhere Out There from being a number one song was Jacob's Ladder from Huey Lewis and the News. Somewhere Out There is the first nominated song to have two distinctly different versions in the film version. This started a trend that will become a staple of movie musicals in just a short time, especially since this gamble paid off very well for an American tale. Other nominated songs have been performed more than once in a film, but always by the same performers, and usually with only different lyrics that keep the same tone, but for a different scene. You have to wonder which version of Somewhere Out There voters listened to when considering it for final Oscar voting. Was it the radio version they heard every day, 
or was it the film version that they could only hear on the soundtrack album or in the film? An American Tale, by the way, turned out to be very successful, making $47 million in the United States on a $9 million budget. By comparison, the Disney animated film that was also released in 1986, The Great Mouse Detective, made only $38 million. That movie had two original songs written by Henry Mancini, but as was the case with The Fine Mess, the songs didn't have any lives outside the movie and very little chance of getting any notice by the music branch. The other two Oscar-nominated songs from 1986 are love songs, but they are almost on opposite ends of the love spectrum from each other. One is a gentle ballad about young love, and the other is much more lustful, written for a sex scene. Let's listen to the softer love song first. It's from The Karate Kid Part 2, which takes Daniel and Mr. Miyagi on a trip to Japan six months after the events of the first Karate Kid movie from 1984. Miyagi's father dies, and his former friend Sato spends most of the movie trying to defend his honor with a live-or-die karate fight. Miyagi always refuses, and Sato's nephew, Chosen, escalates the hostilities by starting a feud with Daniel. Meanwhile, Daniel begins to fall in love with Kumiko, a young Japanese girl who dreams of dancing. Kumiko takes Daniel on a date to an abandoned castle, and playing on the radio in her car is the nominated song from the movie called Glory of Love. We only hear a brief line of the chorus, which goes, We'll live forever, knowing together that we did it all for the glory of love. The song becomes an instrumental during their walk along the beach, and then when they run toward the castle, we get a few seconds of the song's bridge, like a knight in shining armor from a long time ago, just in time I will save the day, take you to my castle far away. It's a perfect line for the scene, especially with the castle in the background that was formerly the residence of a brave king. The bulk of the song is played in the end credits, where the meaning of the lyrics make more sense. This is after Daniel has to fight Chosen to protect Komiko, and when Daniel wins, he's become that knight in shiny armor, saving Komiko because he loves her.
If you're a fan of the rock group Chicago, then you probably know that voice. It's Peter Cetera, who for 18 years was the lead singer for the band, helping them earn the number one spot on the Billboard album charts five times. After testing the waters with a solo album in 1981, Peter Cetera decided to go solo officially in 1985. Glory of Love was the first song to be recorded by Cetera after he left Chicago. Cetera was married to Diane Nini at the time, and he brought her in to help write the lyrics for this love song. And helping Cetera with the music was David Foster, who had produced the last two Chicago albums and also helped Cetera start his solo career. Foster's work on the theme song for 1985's St. Elmo's Fire missed out on an Oscar nomination, but the second time was a charm for him. Glory of Love was originally written for Rocky IV when Sylvester Stallone was shopping for an original song to go in the film and hopefully earn the Rocky series its third Oscar nomination for Best Song. But as I told you in the last episode, that didn't materialize when Burning Heart was passed over in 1985. Stallone didn't like Glory of Love for Rocky IV either, and it looked like that was it. In a 2015 interview, Peter Cetera said, quote, About two weeks after Glory of Love was nixed from Rocky IV, the people from Karate Kid 2 were looking for a song. So they came to the studio where I was working and I played them Glory of Love, and they immediately loved it. So I changed a few words to make it more fitting, end quote. And those changes turned into the first nomination for all three songwriters and a number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 for two weeks in early August 1986. Not a bad way for Peter Cetera to start a solo career. One month later, the other love song nominated for an Oscar in 1986 also spent time at number one on the Billboard Hot 100, but only for one week. The song was so good that new scenes for the action movie Top Gun had to be filmed to fit it. Producers Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson helped corral Flashdance into a major success as a film and as a soundtrack album, helping pull Giorgio Moroder into the post-disco era and his protégés as well. In between Flashdance and Top Gun, the producers made Beverly Hills Cop, another surprise success that spawned a hit track from composer Harold Faltemeyer called Axel F. While Top Gun was in pre-production, Bruckheimer and Simpson knew they wanted a killer soundtrack, and Marauder was brought in to lead it. Faltermeyer was hired to write the Top Gun score, and he created a memorable theme using the electric guitar and synthesizers. Alongside this popular theme were five songs written by Marauder and lyricist Tom Whitlock. Whitlock's involvement in Top Gun came purely by blind luck, as he was previously employed as Marauder's mechanic. And like most people in Hollywood, Whitlock always dreamed of being in entertainment. While fixing one of Marauder's cars in 1983, Whitlock casually mentioned that he spent his teenage years in Missouri writing songs and had briefly gone to Drury University to study music. He dropped out with the goal of starting a band in Los Angeles, a dream that never materialized. After that conversation in 1983, Whitlock began working in Marauder's studio, where he learned more about the industry. When the assignment came for Top Gun, Marauder found that almost all the previous lyricists he had worked with were busy with other projects, and Whitlock became the next in line to help put words to Marauder's melodies. One of the first songs Marauder and Whitlock wrote was Danger Zone, which became one of the film's most popular songs, 
and another great movie song performance for Kenny Loggins. The song plays at the beginning of the film as Navy fighter jets take off from an aircraft carrier in the Indian Ocean to fight the enemy. Bruckheimer and Simpson put a call out for a song to fit this scene, and after pouring through dozens of submissions, they finally came to Marauder for help, which is probably what they should have done in the first place. Danger Zone was the first song from Top Gun to play on the radio, generating interest in the film and in the soundtrack album, which would go on to sell nearly 10 million copies. Danger Zone was a hit, but not good enough to earn the number one spot on the Billboard Hot 100. Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer kept Danger Zone at number two in July 1986, but Danger Zone stayed on the charts for 21 weeks. To add insult to injury, sort of, Danger Zone was not nominated for the Oscar. But Marauder and Whitlock did get their nomination with the song Take My Breath Away, the one that forced the filmmakers to bring back Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis for a reshoot. The movie already had a romantic scene featuring Cruise and McGillis, and Marauder was tasked with writing a melody, which the producers loved. Whitlock spent all of half a day coming up with the lyrics for the song, and after hearing the full song in a demo, Bruckheimer and Simpson loved it so much, they thought the song was too good for the intended scene. Filming had already ended on Top Gun, but Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis were brought back to film a sex scene that would fit the title of the song. The scene is filmed in blue light and mostly in silhouette, because Cruise and McGillis looked slightly different in the month or so since filming ended. But the song draws you in, mostly because the melody had been played a couple of times in the film as a teaser. Whitlock's lyrics don't get much play during the song performance in the film version. We only get the final verse and chorus during the sex scene, but before that, Marauder's melody plays in that hypnotic electric bass as Cruz and McGillis argue before kissing on the street. 
Here's the official recording of the song, with the lyrics sung by Terry Nunn, the lead singer of the band Berlin.
Moroder originally brought Berlin into the project to sing Danger Zone after the band The Motels passed on it. Moroder had produced Berlin's song No More Words, which peaked at number 23 on Billboard chart in 1984. The band passed on Danger Zone and probably thought that was the end of their involvement with the movie. When Take My Breath Away was approved for the film, Moroder asked Berlin to consider this song, and they liked it. The song, as I said, went to number one, and it was the only Berlin song that made it into the top 20. Just about all the songs in Top Gun are original, except for, of course, You've Lost That Love and Feeling and Great Balls of Fire. But pretty much all the others were worthy of Oscar consideration. But since only one song got into the final five, the streak of having two songs nominated from one film ended at three years. These are five good nominated songs. Glory of Love, Life in a Looking Glass, Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, Somewhere Out There, Take My Breath Away. And the list of songs that probably just missed out were probably just as good. In 1986, superstar singer Madonna was married to actor Sean Penn, and when his movie At Close Range was released, it contained a song written by his wife as well as the film's composer Patrick Leonard. Madonna and Leonard had been trying to get a song put into the B-movie Fire with Fire, but Leonard was not hired to work on that project. When he was attached to score at close range, it seemed to be fate that he and Madonna had a song for her husband's movie. The song that features at the end of the film is called Live to Tell, and the title fits very well with the proceedings of the film's finale. Just about everyone is killed as Sean Penn's character Brad Jr. goes toe-to-toe with his mobster father, played by Christopher Walken. Father and son are the only ones that survive the bloodbath, and it's the son who testifies against his father in court. When Brad Jr. tearfully admits that Brad Sr. is his father, the song begins in typical 80s pop flair. Madonna then sings about Brad Jr.'s hope that he'll be able to live to tell what has happened throughout the movie.
This was Madonna's second foray into writing songs for movies. Her first, Crazy For You, was written for Vision Quest in 1985, and the song was a hit among the movie-going public, but not by the Academy. Live to Tell became her third number one song. But the hit song, Just Like Crazy For You, didn't register with the music branch of the Academy, who were allowing pop stars to be Oscar nominees now, but I guess they weren't ready to anoint Madonna as an Oscar nominee. And this won't be the last year that happens. Mike Nichols was back in the directing game with his dark comedy Heartburn, starring Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson in their first movie together. Carly Simon was hired to write a song about lost love that played in the end credits. In the movie version, the song is interspersed with the classic children's song, The Itsy Bitsy Spider, which might have made Coming Round Again ineligible for the Oscar. Rod Temperton had lost out on his first two Oscar nominations the previous year with the song Miss Seeley's Blues from The Color Purple as well as its score. He was back in the movie business in 1986 for the Gregory Hines, Billy Crystal, buddy cop comedy Running Scared. In addition to writing the underscore for the movie, relying heavily on synthesizers that were so pervasive in the 1980s, Temperton was the sole creator of five original songs for the movie. The only one of the five that made any impact was Sweet Freedom, which plays in the movie when Hines and Crystal are ordered to take a vacation after messing up a major gang bust. 
the two start to enjoy the life too much and decide to retire in Key West, Florida. We're treated to the performance of Sweet Freedom as we see Hines and Crystal enjoying their freedom from law enforcement in Florida and eventually agreeing to open a bar there. The tropical location is highlighted in the visuals and in the percussion with what sounds like a marimba, which is essentially a xylophone with wooden plates instead of metal ones. That's Michael McDonald singing the song, which gave him a top 10 hit in summer 1986. McDonald was happy to work again with Temperton, who had co-written McDonald's last big hit called Ya Mo Be There, a duet with James Ingram from 1984. That song had won McDonald his fifth Grammy in five years, and the magic struck again with Sweet Freedom, earning McDonald a Grammy nomination for Best Male Pop Performance in 1986. Temperton also received a nomination for writing Sweet Freedom, but it wasn't an Academy Award nomination. The song was nominated for a Golden Globe and would seem to have been the alternative choice for the Hollywood Foreign Press Association over Mean Green Mother from Outer Space from Little Shop of Horrors. The other four songs that would earn Oscar nominations one month after the Golden Globes competed against Sweet Freedom at the Golden Globes, and it was Take My Breath Away that took the first win of the award season. Because the dates for eligibility for the Grammy Awards and the Academy Awards aren't the same, Somewhere Out There wasn't part of the competition in the Grammy Awards that took place February 24, 1987. Though the Academy had announced the number one hits Take My Breath Away and Glory of Love as two of the five original song nominees, 
two weeks before the Grammy ceremony. It appeared that the folks responsible for the Grammy nominations weren't impressed with either song or the performances, giving zero nominations to those two recordings. It usually works the other way around, with the Recording Academy falling head over heels for a hit movie song, and the Academy saying no thanks to some of the top movie songs of the year. But things are flipping around as we see the Academy is now starting to fall in love with pop songs more than ever. So with the Golden Globes as a baseline, especially since the British Academy of Film and Television were no longer awarding original songs, it looked like Take My Breath Away was going to be the frontrunner for the original song Oscar. Several members of the press were saying Take My Breath Away was a safe bet for the win, mostly because it was a number one billboard song and came from the year's most popular movie. But those associated with Henry Mancini were not happy just to be nominated. The public broadcasting system aired a two-hour retrospective of Mancini's career on March 21, 1987, three days before the Oscar ballots were due. Several of Mancini's friends appeared on the special to sing some of his songs, including Julie Andrews and Dudley Moore. It was clearly an attempt to get the Academy to remember how great Mancini's career was, and perhaps they should vote to give him his fifth Academy Award. On the night of the Academy Awards, March 30, 1987, all the nominated songwriters were in the audience. Giorgio Moroder flew from Switzerland to attend, particularly after reading all the press that he was going to get Oscar number three that night. The performance of Take My Breath Away was the only one that night to not feature the original artists. Well, actually, somewhere out there had James Ingram, but Linda Ronstadt did not attend, letting Natalie Cole sing in her place. But Berlin did not show up to sing Take My Breath Away, and you can blame Terry Nunn for that one. The band was on tour in Australia, and Terry Nunn turned down the invitation to sing on the Oscars in Los Angeles. It's something that Nunn has regretted turning down every year since. Lou Rawls and Melba Moore subbed in for Berlin on Oscar night, putting an R&B spin on the rock song that made it, well, just different. I'm sure songwriters Giorgio Moroder and Tom Whitlock weren't happy with what they heard on the stage that night. Bernadette Peters, a star on the Broadway stage who hadn't really made much of a splash in Hollywood, was a mistress of ceremonies of sorts for the 20-minute medley of performances of the nominated songs. I couldn't find the name of the song she sang at the beginning of the segment and in between each nominated song, but it had to do with songs and the movies. I have a feeling it was written specifically for the show. James Horner was up for two awards that night. In addition to sweating over winning for original song, he was nominated for the original score Oscar for his work on Aliens. His heart was probably in his throat when Bette Midler walked out to announce the winner. Unlike her appearance five years earlier, Midler didn't make fun of any of the score nominees and simply announced Herbie Hancock's almost original score for Round Midnight as the winner. A few moments later, Bernadette Peters handled duties for original song, and earlier in the evening, she had sung a few bars of each nominated tune. She didn't offer any theatrics like Bette Midler, simply opening the envelope and announcing that the frontrunner, Take My Breath Away, was the Oscar-winning song of 1986. Giorgio Moroder was now a perfect 3-for-3 at the Oscars, and Tom Whitlock scored an Oscar on his first nomination 
on his first official music project. Marauder made an attempt at a joke in his speech, saying that there were so many great songs in 1986, and he especially liked Take My Breath Away. And Whitlock made sure to mention Happy Go Day, the man behind the curtain at Paramount who was the chief promoter of many Oscar-winning songs going back to at least 1972. Somewhere Out There wasn't eligible to compete at the 29th Grammy Awards in 1987 because it was released as a recording after that award's eligibility timeline. But it was eligible to compete at the 30th Grammy Awards, where it was competing against I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, Didn't We Almost Have It All, Luca, and La Bamba for the prestigious Song of the Year Grammy. And probably against all odds, Somewhere Out There won the Song of the Year Grammy, the first movie song to take the award since Evergreen and You Light Up My Life tied in 1978. And it took home the first Grammy Award for Best Song Written for a Movie or Television, beating out three songs that came out in 1987 that we'll talk about in the next episode. So the PBS special didn't get Henry Mancini an Oscar win, but it didn't discourage him. Mancini kept working well through his 60s, writing music for four more Blake Edwards movies, including the last Pink Panther film called Son of the Pink Panther, starring a yet-to-be-adored Roberto Benigni in 1993. But Life in a Looking Glass in 1986 would be Mancini's final Oscar nomination, bringing his total to 18 nominations. Mancini's legacy in the movies is not to be ignored at all. At the time, his three songwriting Oscars were second only to Sammy Kahn. He helped foster the marriage of pop music and the movies in the early 1960s and was a mentor to the great composer John Williams. After many years of legal battles, the stage version of Victor Victoria made its debut on Broadway on October 25, 1995. Mancini wasn't there to celebrate on opening night as he had died of pancreatic cancer on June 14, 1994. There could be an argument that Henry Mancini was one of the last old-school composers whose career went into decline when movie scores came from synthesizers instead of orchestras. Though his protege John Williams paved the way for orchestral film scores in the 1970s and 1980s, Mancini just couldn't find the project that could earn him the type of acclaim that Breakfast at Tiffany's brought him in the 1960s. I can't help but wonder what his career would have been like if not for the decades-long association with Blake Edwards. Only the collaboration between Steven Spielberg and John Williams has lasted longer in Hollywood. Giorgio Moroder's unique sound was also going out of favor in Hollywood and in the recording industry, though he still stayed very much employed for decades. Take My Breath Away was his final Oscar nomination, keeping him with a perfect score at the Oscars. In a 2015 interview, Marauder called Take My Breath Away his favorite composition, saying he loves that it's still played on the radio. Tom Whitlock continued to work with Giorgio Marauder after Top Gun, including another movie song for Kenny Loggins in 1987 called Meet Me Halfway. But nothing really matched the success of the Top Gun project, and Whitlock lived mostly on royalties from Take My Breath Away and Danger Zone. On February 18, 2023, Tom Whitlock died at 68 years old of Alzheimer's disease. 
The Oscar win for Take My Breath Away made it six years in a row that the Oscar-winning song has also spent at least one week at number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Could we make it seven in 1987? You'll just have to find out on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. Thanks for singing along with me on this episode. As always, I invite you to reach out to me with any questions or comments you have by sending an email to jeffswim at aol.com. Bye for now. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.